The scripture reading for this morning is taken from the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 4. And we will be starting at verse 14 and reading to verse 30. Luke 4, verse 14 to 30. So up to this time, we just had the baptism of Jesus Christ in this gospel. And then, having been baptized, having split open, Holy Spirit descended on Jesus in the shape of a dove, and then follows the genealogy of Jesus Christ, which ties him right back, ties him intimately to the human race, right back to Adam. And then after that, we find... Jesus being tempted in the desert. He faces off against the devil and he emerges victorious. So that brings us to our passage today, Luke 4, verse 14. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee and a report about him went out throughout all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And when he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him, and marveled at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless, you'll quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath, in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, And they rose up and drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. The word of God. Is taken from Luke chapter 4, verse 21, reminding us as we sang of the Lamb of God who's redeemed us, set prisoners free. 
he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Imagine hearing these words. If I personally read a piece of scripture like that and said, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, you'd definitely raise your eyebrows, wouldn't you? After all, who am I? I'm a simple pastor from a small town that's on the outskirts of the Canadian Reformed community in southern Ontario, taking messianic words as my own. Now, consider how startling these words would have been to the people of Jesus' community. Here was a man who was a former carpenter. He was a former carpenter, and he had been for the last few decades. And he, he's now left home and become a rabbi, and he comes back after all this time, and he says this. What would be your reaction? These are the opening words of Jesus in his hometown of Nazareth. He makes a remarkable claim. How are they to take it? Today we'll look at this passage, and more specifically at our text, under the following theme. As his first act... Christ proclaims the liberty the gospel brings. And we'll see, first of all, the substance of his proclamation, and secondly, the response to his proclamation. As we come into our setting here, it quickly becomes evident that Nazareth is not the first stop that Jesus makes. We read in verse 23, "...whatever we have heard done in Capernaum..." Do also here. Whatever this, what, what is this that they've heard that he's accomplished here? The text doesn't tell us, but it does make it clear that he's not here in Nazareth to give his very first address. He's been preaching around Galilee, and the region's gossip mills are churning out information about him. And 4 verse 15 explains why. He was teaching in their synagogues, and people were very impressed. It says that he was glorified or praised by all. However, although he's not completely new to the region in this particular passage, he is in the first stages of his ministry here. And that means that he has a special message for the people of Galilee and for the people of Nazareth. He has a greater focus on repentance later on in his ministry... And he's coming out of a setting where John the Baptist was preaching to all of the people to repent and believe, but that's not his first focus in his message today. That's not to say that he didn't speak about it, that there aren't elements of it during his time, but it does force us to look, okay, what exactly is Jesus preaching about? 
Jesus is preaching about Jesus. And this becomes very evident in the scripture passage that he chooses. First we read, as was his custom, as was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. This was his normal pattern. When he came to a place to visit, he did what every visiting rabbi would do. He spent time in their synagogue, in their place of worship on the Sabbath day, and he read from the scriptures and he taught them. By the way, as a side note, you might find some people who say, where does it say I have to go to any church? Can't I be part of the universal church without being a part of the physical church? Well, that doesn't pan out for a whole lot of reasons, but one of them can be find, found here. You want to be like Jesus? Christ went to worship with a body of believers on the day of rest, as was his custom. He didn't skip it. He didn't miss out because he didn't feel like it. It was important to him. Ask such a person, if it was important to Jesus, shouldn't it be important to you as an image bearer of Christ? But that being said, our focus here is on what Christ was preaching about. So what is he preaching about? He stood up to read, as was the custom of his day. You read the scriptures and you stand out of respect. And then you go to teach the people. And then sitting down was a sign to all of them that you were ready to begin. Jesus stands up to read and he chooses a passage from Isaiah. Specifically, he chose the passage where Isaiah describes an anointing by the Spirit of the Lord. The interesting thing about this passage that Jesus chooses is that it would have been one that was familiar to the Jewish people. Now, there was a bit of debate among them about who exactly this referred to. Some thought it referred to Isaiah himself, but considering the context of who he was preaching about, this would have been unusual and unexpected for him to do. Because we find that repeatedly throughout the book of Isaiah up to this point, Isaiah has been speaking about the servant of the Lord. And only the servant of the Lord, this figure of whom he speaks, is on the receiving end of such elevated language in the book of Isaiah. Never Isaiah himself. The servant of the Lord was someone who is familiar to the Jews. He was a character who was spoken of with much delight by the prophet Isaiah. He was one who would bring salvation to the people and was highly regarded by the prophet Isaiah. You can find that in all kinds of different passages throughout Isaiah. As that's the case, it would be surprising if he spoke this highly of himself and took on the attributes that he earlier gave to the one who he described as the coming one, the servant of the Lord. Now the fact that Jesus chose this passage and read it as being fulfilled in himself, this makes it abundantly clear who it was actually for. It removes all debate. More than that, it also speaks volumes about who the person of Jesus was. He was a servant. He was the one in whom the Lord delights in Isaiah 42. The one who will be a light to the Gentiles in Isaiah 49. And the one who would suffer on behalf of the people because of their sins in Isaiah 53. Jesus was saying, I am that servant. I'm the one you've all been waiting for all these years. I am the Messiah. 
Having said that he is the servant, our Lord is making four statements. First, he's stating that the Spirit of the Lord is upon him. Now, there's no question about that. If you have read at all through the book of Luke, through the gospel of Luke, you would have seen that leading up to this point, the Spirit of the Lord had descended on Jesus in the form of the dove after John had baptized him. Now, John's baptisms and his preaching weren't things which were done in private. The whole countryside could attest to the fact that Jesus had received this divine anointing that he's talking about. Now, second, our Lord is preaching the gospel to them. Christ has sent his Messiah into the world in order to declare the good news to them. What is that good news? The good news is that there is a great divide between man and God. That they are caught and they're held captive in their own sin. That they cannot deliver themselves. But God, God has taken the initiative to deliver them Himself. God cares about His people. He's not a silent God. Jesus is declaring to them that God is on the move. More than that, he's preaching the gospel to the poor. And this is pretty much a summary of Jesus' entire ministry. He's not coming exclusively for those who are rich and powerful in the world, but he's coming to fulfill his promises to provide for the poor, for the widow, for the orphan, and for the needy. Beloved, we should keep this in mind in our day-to-day lives. Certainly this doesn't mean that we should ignore those who are well off physically, emotionally, and financially among us. But it does mean that we should not show partiality to them. Do you reach out with a healing salve of the gospel to those who are in need in your own church family? Do you look for those who are discouraged, who are downcast, to give them that gospel hope? These are things we ought to think about when we read about Jesus bringing the gospel to the poor. Now, the next phrase is taken together. They are the third statement that Jesus makes. And it can be summarized under the words bracketed there. So, proclaiming the good news to the poor and proclaiming the the year of the Lord's favor, in between that, we see those things which are tied together there. Proclaiming liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, setting at liberty those who are oppressed. The brokenhearted, those who are captives to sin, to demon possession and myriads of other things, those who are blind, whether physically or spiritually, all of these will be set at liberty. All of them will be delivered from oppression in this new era that Jesus brings forward. This is the result of that gospel hope that Jesus brings to his people. When God brings salvation, God brings healing with it. He brings freedom from all sorts of slavery with it through the servant, through the person of Jesus Christ. But if you'll notice... The healing and the liberation that they're speaking of, it all comes within the context of the proclamation of the gospel, the good news, the fact that everything is going to be set right between God and man. 
You can see that in the passage you chose. It's bracketing it. You'll notice that whenever the Lord and the apostles do miracles and other good works, it's always within that framework, the framework of the good news. Because physical liberation, being set free from disease and being crippled and being enslaved, is always a picture of the freedom that we get in Jesus Christ. There's a theological movement that's described as liberation theology, which turns this concept on its head. They argue that Jesus Christ came to liberate, and so that should be our focus. It doesn't matter as much if we preach the gospel, as long as we live the gospel personally, and we set people free from the effects of sin. As that's the case, they're willing to work with many companies which don't share the gospel, as long as they're bringing liberty to people in various ways. But Jesus is teaching something else here. He's teaching that freedom from other things is only a picture, an image of a greater freedom that is found in Him. Freedom from sin. This isn't to say that we shouldn't give money to these other organizations, but it does mean that in general we should be intentional about our donation and about our mission work. Our are funds going to advance the kingdom? Are the organizations that we're working in and that we're donating to using physical freedom as a picture of the freedom from sin that we get in Jesus Christ? And are they using it to direct people to the only one who can truly set them free? Jesus himself makes this point very clear throughout his ministry. He refers to, in particular, the leper, Naaman the leper. And that brings to mind for us the disease of leprosy in the Old Testament. Leprosy was a living death. This was a disease that really enslaved people. Boys and girls, imagine for a second, imagine for a second that you're a leper in the Old Testament. Anything that you touched would be considered unclean. Anything you touched. You wouldn't be allowed to give your mom or dad a hug because then they would be made unclean. You'd be forced to live outside of town. You'd be forced to live, say you were living in a lore, you'd be forced to live outside of town by yourself or maybe in a small community of other people with leprosy just so that nobody would accidentally become unclean through contact with you. And we read in Leviticus 13, verse 45, anyone with such a defiling disease must wear torn clothes. Let their hair be unkempt. Which means let their hair be really messy. Cover the lower part of their face and cry out, unclean! Unclean! You would pretty much be considered a walking dead man you'd be a real slave to your disease. You'd be oppressed. Why were people treated this way? Well, they were treated this way for two reasons. The first was so that they wouldn't accidentally make someone else unclean. And that's a very practical reason. But that's not the only reason. 
The second reason was to remind people of how bad sin really was. Do you understand this, boys and girls? God wanted to teach His people that sin was really bad. Sin makes you a walking dead man. And that sin could not only touch and ruin your life, but it could touch and ruin the lives of those who are around you. Sin is contagious, which means it's catching. Because your sin causes all kinds of hurt and pain to those who are around you, and sometimes causes them to respond in ways that hurt other people. In that way, sin becomes a slave master. It can lead you to live already in this life with a taste of hellish agony every moment of the day. And to show how incredibly dangerous it is to have sin in your life, people with leprosy were sent outside of the camp as a living picture that sin needed to be cut off from your lives. But this also meant for that person who had the disease that they were a living picture of this. Leprosy was a slave master for them. Telling them where they could go, who they could spend time with, telling them even who they could not spend time with. It controlled their lives and it ruined them. Now imagine for a moment coming to Jesus Christ as a person with leprosy. Being a slave for years to this picture of sin. We read about that in the beginning of Matthew 8. A leper came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, make me clean. And Jesus put out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately, his leprosy was cleansed. He touched him. The beauty of this moment, beloved, should not be lost on you. This epitomized the servant of Isaiah. That is to say, this was the total, supreme example of what Jesus came to do on this earth as the servant. He came not to be served, but to serve. He came to take our sin upon himself and make us clean. He came with this action as a word picture of exactly what was to happen to the people that he was proclaiming the good news to. Touching this man, this man wouldn't have been touched in a very long time. And the very first human touch he felt again, after such a long time, was the touch of his Lord and our Lord, our older brother and Savior, Jesus Christ. Normally, someone would be made unclean if they touched a leper. But Jesus Christ wasn't made unclean by the touch. Instead, by symbolically taking this uncleanness on himself, he made the man clean. He released him from his enslavement, his leprosy. But his releasing him from slavery to leprosy carried much more weight. It was a picture of the release from sin that could be found in Jesus Christ, the release that He's proclaiming in our passage today. The release 
that he's speaking about when he says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And that brings us to the fourth thing which Jesus, the fourth statement which Jesus declares. He's coming to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. By his miracles, by his actions, Jesus was proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. He was proclaiming a new era, a new age in which God will pour out his grace in a special way. He is going from gospel freedom to physical liberation in reading this passage. He's speaking about gospel freedom and then physical liberation and then from physical things back to the gospel again. The year of the Lord's favor, that acceptable year, is what is ushered in when Jesus suffers, dies on the cross, is resurrected and goes up to heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father. This is the exact acceptable year of the Lord, the year of the Lord's favor that Paul speaks about in 2 Corinthians 6, the verses 1 to 2, where he says, We then, as workers together with Him, also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For He says, In an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. This will come to an end. This will come to an end. And since no one knows the day or moment, we need to take it seriously and look to Jesus for our freedom now. Because it won't be here for forever. At this moment, however, the moment that Jesus comes in our passage and begins to preach, till this day, we can still take hold of the benefits of Christ by faith. We can still receive liberation from the oppression of sin. This release from slavery begins with Jesus Christ. And His freedom was pointed to by His miracles. That is what He wanted the people of His hometown to recognize. But sadly, sadly they could not accept what He was saying. They could not accept the words that he said when he sat down and said, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. There is a saying made popular by the New Testament, but which goes back to even earlier times. No prophet is accepted in his hometown. Have you ever experienced this? Going back to your own hometown, the place where you grew up? where everybody knew you from the time when you were tiny, and they built up a picture in their minds of who you are, the kind of person that you are. It might not even be a correct picture, but that's the one they have, and they aren't able to shake it. This was a saying which was even true of our Lord Jesus Christ. They had, in their minds, put Him into a box, and they couldn't picture Him outside of that. And because of their own mental picture of what Jesus was like, instead of going to the Bible and reading passages like this one that we find in Isaiah and seeing what Jesus did and seeing how He spoke and thinking, yeah, this is exactly it. He's preaching the gospel. He's, he's proclaiming liberty. He's, he's bringing healing. And He's talking about the year of the Lord's favor. Instead of recognizing Him and submitting to Him as the servant of Isaiah, the Messiah who was anointed by God to bring the good news, to live and to die as the sacrifice that the good news required, they took offense at Him. First, they marveled. 
And that's not to say that they were impressed by what he was saying. They figured they had him pigeonholed. They marveled because they were impressed that it was Joseph's son, the carpenter, who was saying this. Some suggest that this reference to Joseph might even be a mocking one to remind each other that the fact that he was indeed Joseph's son might be called into question. And they weren't thinking about divine origins. Now it would be surprising if they became this hostile right away, but it is possible. They marveled in the same way that you would marvel if one of our Alora boys came back as the Prime Minister of Canada. It's not the fact that it's impossible that it could happen. It's just that it's incredible to look at someone in our circles and and picture them in that position. And because they felt they had a personal connection with him, they didn't care so much about what he had to say. They wanted him to do stuff for him. The people of his hometown wanted Jesus to do miracles for their benefit. You've got this power. Now, do it for us. Put it on display. But what he had to say, they didn't need that. They felt they already knew everything about him, and they didn't need any lectures from him on how to act. It grieves Jesus that they respond in this way. It really grieves him. The people that you grow up with can often be the ones that you love the most dearly. The mechanic who worked on your snowmobiles. The farmer who helped out on your dad's farm when he was laid up, sick for a while. The mom who fed you and listened to your stories when you went over to your friend's house. The people who helped you to clean up and renovate your first fixer-upper house. It grieved Jesus that these people whom he cared about, who knew him from when he was a young boy, would reject his message and only wanted to see him do interesting things for them. Don't you know, he says, that all of these miracles you want me to perform were meant to point you to who I am and what my task is here? And then he compares their stubbornness and wickedness in their refusal to listen to the days of Israel in the time of Elijah. To understand how bad this comparison was, you only need to remember who was king at that time, Ahab, and his equally wicked wife, Jezebel. This was a bad time for the people. As they all went after the Baals, the Lord spoke to them through His prophets. He proclaimed His word to them. And yet, they all went after the Baals. And God, during this time, only preserved for Himself 7,000 in the entire nation who had not bent the knee to a false god during this time. And to add to that, He He gives them a picture to work with. He says, I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah when heaven was shut up for three years and six months and there was a great famine throughout the land. But to none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon. This is outside of Israel. To a woman who was a widow. People in Israel wouldn't listen. They wouldn't hear. 
They wouldn't recognize that these works came along with the gospel message, the word from God. And so, he was sent outside to where people would hear and accept. And many lepers in Israel were cleansed, were in the time of Elisha the prophet, but none of them were cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. Again, a foreigner, someone who lives outside of Israel. It's at this point that their marveling turns to rage. What? This proud young carpenter goes and gets an education only to compare us with the most wicked people in our history? You're saying that God will pass us by because we don't think much of you. Who do you think you are? And just like in Elisha's day, they rejected the word of God from heaven. They rejected Jesus. They didn't benefit from the healing that was symbolic of the healing from sin. The bringing back from walking death to life that the gospel brings. And that's what we see. In their rage, they reject the gospel. And they even bring Jesus to the top of a cliff to throw him off. All because they could not accept the words, Today, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. And here we see the shadow of the cross. Enraged Jews who are passed by because they cannot grasp what Christ's liberation looks like try to kill him for his message. But it was not yet his time. It was not yet his time. So God intervenes. Having brought him to the top of the cliff, the crowd suddenly releases him They part, and Jesus goes on his way. Jesus passes them by. And the shadow of the cross moves away from them. Beloved, brothers and sisters, today you have this very same gospel message put before you. You have that freedom that is offered from the living, walking death of the slavery of sin. Some of you may think that you know Jesus, that you know what He offers, and you're not particularly interested. Maybe you do know a little bit of what He offers, but don't put Him into a box. Don't limit Him. Or you'll find yourself taking offense at Him and His Word, especially when people come to your house to open the Gospel with you. And in rejecting Him, he'll find that you'll find that He passes through the midst of you and He goes on His way. Today, this Scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus Christ has proclaimed liberty to you. Outside of Him, you are blind. But in Him, you'll be able to see. Open His Word and discover what He has to say. Put aside what you think He says and and sit down. Really listen. Really read. Open your heart and your mind. And look critically at your life in connection with God's Word. But more than that, use this time in God's Word to direct your heart to Him in faith. Him who forgives 
all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit. These are the words that you hear every time again at Lord's Supper. Direct your life to Him who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, and who redeems your life from the pit. Let every moment in which you experience healing be a reminder to you of the greater healing that Jesus Christ brings. Jesus can bring you healing, and He will bring you healing. He can bring you freedom, and He will. He can redeem your life from the pit, and He does. If you look to Him in faith, He guarantees it. You can count on it. Beginning in this life, and carrying on to the next. That liberty that He proclaims, that liberty that He speaks about, it's for you. It's for you. If you'll receive and listen to it and put your trust in Jesus Christ. Amen.